You're listening to So You Want to Be a Photographer with Gina Militia, one of Australia's leading portrait celebrity and lifestyle photographers. With over 25 years' experience in the industry, Gina is a pro photographer who regularly travels the world shooting for some of the country's top magazines and advertisers. She is author of four best-selling books on photography, runs workshops and mentors aspiring photographers all around the world. In conversation with journalist, interviewer and budding amateur photographer Valerie Koo, Gina reveals what it takes to build a successful photography business, provides a sneak peek into life behind the lens and talks about her tips and techniques to get the perfect shot. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 212 of So You Want to Be a Photographer. My name's Valerie Koo, and I'm here with Gina Militia. How are you, Gina? I'm great, Val. How are you going? How was Melbourne? I'm good, good. It was cold. It was cold. Um, so, but it was, yeah, quick visit. Had to go and do my, um, facilitate some corporate training, and that went really well. So, that was good. Yeah. Hmm. What, what have you been up to? Uh, so I've got a bit of a confession to make. A confession? Mm. This is this could be mm. good. Mm. Okay. <laughs> What's it about? Um, I've been cheating on Canon a little bit. <laughs> well, Gina, I knew this day would come. Did you? <laughs> uh, yeah, I've been – and it, it's very exciting actually. I've been cheating with uh, Fuji. Mirrorless. Has it been a? Has it been an illicit romance? Have you well, actually? I sort have of. You've been hiding the. Fact? A little bit. A little bit. Yeah. Sneaking around. So what happened was, uh, so I I first bought the Fuji a year ago, and I was attracted to its good looks, which is very shallow of me. Very and then, shallow. You know, it was like. Did you ever date that guy that was very attractive but there was not a lot going on and so you sort of hung out with them because they looked good next to you but then you kind of had to like let it go because it wasn't working, right? Well, I think we've all yeah. done that, right? So yeah. I, I felt like that with the Fuji. I felt like I'd made a mistake because every time I tried to – pick this camera up and try and shoot mirror and everyone was raving about it. This camera's the best. This camera's the best. And I would just go, I feel so klutzy with this camera. I felt so klutzy and then I just stopped using it. I just said, I've made a mistake. I can't. I can't. I'm going to be a DSLR girl for the rest of my life and I put it down. And then one day, I don't know what what possessed me, like about a couple of weeks ago, I'm like, I'm going to give it another go. <laughs> and so oh, okay. I read the manual, Val. I read the manual. Oh, I d- yes. worked out what all the – because that was the frustrating thing for me was like I couldn't remember where – because it was completely different layout to the DSLRs yep. Yep. that I shoot with. And so I finally went, oh, that's what that does. Oh, that's what that's for. And and I took it out. I took it out on the shoot and I love it. I love it. It's not – it's not going to be the – it's not going to replace my uh, DSLR on commercial shoots because it's like I don't believe that – this isn't a, a pro camera anyway that I bought, but I don't think that the pro ones, and I know people will argue with me, but I think Canon is still king of skin tones. And for what I do, I need that big full-size body and the the, the weather seal and everything. But as a travel camera – 
I'm loving it. I'm loving it for the portability to just be able to throw something in your handbag or it fits in your jacket mm. pocket, Val. And uh, like, it's yep. just, I'm very happy with, and, and people don't take you seriously when you've got this camera, which is kind of good for street portraits because no one thinks you're a, you know, doing anything yes, other than they don't casually stop taking stop you while you're at the opera house and drag you away. Oh, and they that don't happened with stop us, didn't you it? while you're on Bondi Beach. Yeah, exactly. Um, because. You haven't got a permit or something. You, they just think you're a tourist. You just look like a local with a little tiny, and most people think it's a film. Ca- it's a sexy, sexy camera. Most people think it's a film camera. So um, that's what I've been doing. Really? Wow. And like, it, did you feel dirty? Uh, yeah, I felt like because, you know, 30 years as the, and working with the Yeah, I did. I felt like I was cheating on them and a little bit dirty. Yeah. But I got over it. You got to get over it. Like, you know, you need variety, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> very, very important. Yeah. All right. So you've been cheating on Canon. Okay. Well, interesting. Wow. All right. Well, what else has been happening in Gina world, hey? So I just uh, finished and uploaded the latest lot of uh, CCs for the goal community. So lots of great stuff happening So you mean there. constructive critiques of their photos? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we covered uh, awesome. like stuff like how to, hire, how to light high-end portraits so that you don't need to spend as much time editing your images because where how you light mm. your shots is can have a massive impact on how much time you then have to edit depending on what the direction the light's coming from. So I've got a great system that I shared with the guys Do and it just saves so much time. And then, you know, yeah. on the other – because we've got professionals and absolute newbies so that, you know, we've got how to edit skin tones in Lightroom for beginners and uh, posing corporate headshots. I, there was even one on how to adjust hair colour. Sometimes when you change uh, – uh, the exposure, uh, you, you'll pick up a lot more orange in the in the hair color. So, like, there was a really simple way to remove that. So, lots of, like I, I'm loving this, Val. It's so much fun, yeah. and ev- every month there is new and exciting things to challenge. So, um, yeah, it's really cool. I love all of the people in the gold community. They are from all walks of life, from so many different countries, but all love photography. And it's so interesting to see all of the the different styles and passions and interests and and, and backgrounds. Um, If you're interested in finding out more about the gold community, have a listen to this. Hey guys, are you an enthusiast or pro photographer who wants to take their photography to the next level? I'd love the opportunity to work with you and I want to introduce you to my Gold Community. The Gold Community is an educational resource where members get access to photography courses and regular tutorials. There's over 200 tutorials with more being added each month. In these tutorials, I take you on set with me and I share my thought process behind scouting locations, posing 
composing and directing models, lighting and post-production, you get to see the entire shoot from start to finish, from surface in Sri Lanka using a single speed light to character portraits on the streets of Sicily using daylight or high-end studio shoots where I share all my posing and connecting hacks. There's also regular photo critiques, monthly live calls and heaps more. As a member, you'll also have access to my exclusive Facebook group and online forum where you'll be able to connect with other members from all over the world. So what are you waiting for? Join the Gold community today and start taking the kind of photos you've always dreamed of. You can check it out at ginamilitia.com. Okay, so what you know what I'm doing this weekend, Gina? What are you doing this weekend, Val? I'm going to gold class for you know people who don't live in Australia. Gold class is where you um, pay the extra to sit in the fancy seats um, at the cinema so that you can like drink champagne and wine yeah, and, and they bring have you food, food brought it's to beautiful. you. Beautiful. We yeah. did it a while back together. We saw. I can't remember yes. what we saw, but it was awesome. Like There's a lot of champagne. What are you seeing? Crazy rich Asians. Of course. I actually really <laughs> want to say, I think I might read the book. Should I read the book first? Uh, well, up to you. You don't have to. But uh, because, you know, there are actually three books and this is this movie is just the first book. Oh. And um, it's just taken the world by storm. You have been living under a rock recently. This is the movie that's in the media everywhere that is um, – on everyone's lips. And um, you know what, Gina? You and I have two degrees of separation. What? Between? Well, one degree of separation. Yeah. Or is it one? 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 De- no. We've got what? We've both got separately one degree of separation with that movie. What? How? Well, you photographed. Now, here's the thing, everyone. Gina often forgets who she's photographed, but I remember for her. Right. So you actually photographed one of the cast members. He's an Australian actor and he plays Alistair, the character Alistair, who is, you know, the cousin of the main character, whatever. And um, Remy, who was, uh, who's an Australian actor, he was in Neighbours. He was also in a, a great miniseries called A Better Man and you photographed him. Right. And okay, great. You, Gina has no recollection. They all look the same no to me, Val. <laughs> <laughs> and so to to jog your memory, you shot him because he starred he'd had the starring role in the miniseries about the last Australian who was executed in Singapore. Oh um, what oh now I remember. Oh, my God. All right, I'm going to go see it now. I'll go see the movie. All right. Yeah. And I have one degree of separation because I interviewed the author of the book who obviously, you know, has gone on to do uh, pretty amazing things and have a huge number of bestsellers. But, um, yeah, we'll report back as to whether we enjoyed the movie or not. That should be fun. I've worked something out, Val. Every time – an author comes onto your writing podcast, they go yeah. on to become Hollywood. <laughs> right. They have a blockbuster. Well, so who who did um, 
what was my other favorite uh, sitcom with Reese with a, what's that one that the Leanne Moriarty it, you interviewed yeah, her Leanne, right Leanne Moriarty yeah, yeah we way her, way back in the day oh, and then she goes and uh, yeah obviously Nicole listens to your podcast I reckon <laughs> she might listen to this too yes maybe yeah hi Nicole hello. <laughs> All right, anyway, uh, let's move on to this week's show. Very, very exciting because you have a guest that um, you want to introduce us to, don't you? Yes. Uh, So I first discovered our guest today, Bradley Hanson, when I stumbled across uh, the excellent podcast that he co-hosts with uh, UK photographer Ian Weldon, who who I also interviewed I think maybe 10 episodes back, Uh, and that's Out of Focus uh, podcast, and it's fantastic. The thing I love – so I first – when I was first introduced to uh, Bradley, I hadn't seen his photography I loved how he spoke about photography the art of photography and I would find myself reading his blogs and wishing I had thought of that or I could write like that he writes beautifully and just the way he puts words together and explains stuff is uh, fantastic and then I saw his images and so he Like the reason behind all these interviews is I want to find inspiring photographers and so that we can all learn from the best in the world. And I think when you've been a photographer for 19 years and he shot over 600 weddings, I think Bradley has a lot of great stuff to great stuff to share. And he certainly didn't disappoint in this interview. So he shares his thoughts on, you know, starting out how that, that, that first first wedding what that feels like and the difference in developing your confidence and how that's changed over the years and 600 weddings on uh, setting expectations with your clients and also the difference between pleasing the client and then also pleasing yourself as an artist and things like muscle memory shooting intuitively we talk a lot about posing and his his workflow and editing style and lots and lots of great stuff uh, in this interview. So shall we have a listen? Absolutely. Bradley Hanson, welcome to the show. How are you going? Hi, thank you. I'm doing great. How are you? Good. I'm very excited to chat to you. Before we start, where in the world are you? I am in Minneapolis, uh, which is um, it's at the kind of in the center of the country at the very northern uh edge near the Great Lakes. So we're a little bit uh, west of Chicago and just below, I think, uh, Manitoba or Winnipeg. A beautiful part of the world. I did drive through. I, I, I don't think I even stopped, but, uh, you know, um, it, it's lovely countryside all around there. I really enjoyed my time driving through your city. <laughs> well, you should have stopped. But, yeah, there's, it's, it has some unique things about it, like the, the Mississippi River, and it has an unusually uh, large number of lakes. Yeah, I will go back. I think we did. We were doing road trips at similar times. You were probably we probably could have passed each other on the freeway at some point. You were going the other way. I think you I was, were going. Yeah, I was going west. Yeah, and I did east west. So I got all the way from uh, Santa Monica to Detroit in in like seven days or something. So it was a, a big drive. Yeah, that's well, kind of diagonal. 
Yeah, yeah, no, it's cool. So, um, in your own words, what 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 is it that you do? What what, what, what describe your photography to to the listeners? Well, for the I, I do I, I have a, I'm lucky that I have a one kind of main concentration, and that's for the last 19 years I have earned a living shooting weddings, um, and I've done them all over the world. Um, most of them were during my I lived in Seattle for almost 13 years, um, and now I'm back in Minneapolis, which is where I grew up, um, and I've been back here for I guess what. Wow, nine years again already. Um, and I've done over 600 weddings. And so I started off with an approach of, of being um, as invisible as possible. And that's kind of something that I've just – an approach that I've refined. So my goal is to kind of get images that resonate with me and that are clean and graphic and emotional, but also, um, you know, that can – be that are created entirely while they're happening so i don't monkey around a lot in post other than making things applying a very specific kind of tonality that's yeah. based on my long history of shooting film so yeah. i started i started in film um and i went into digital very reluctantly um, Did you? Were yes. you one of those naysayers saying, oh, it's not as good as film? <laughs> it's yep, not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was a turd. Um, yeah, so I thought, oh, I, like, you know, um, to quote this other photographer, you know, I was like, I'm going to be shooting film until I have to buy it out of the back of a hippie's van. You know, like I, I just – digital at the time was t- – terrible terrible Um, when it started it was it was it was awful well yeah and i i could see why especially for people like that shot for sports illustrated where you know instead of having to deal with the scan and upload and all that complicated stuff you could just give them a file and especially when you're going to like a low like a low res destination like a magazine or uh you know the dot scale that's on like even most color print magazines um, and they're better now, but um, you didn't need a big file. And but the the issue for me early on was just you know um, the whole process was so foreign to me because I was just really attached to what I was doing. I I knew how to you know I was an experienced printer. I loved I loved the process of film. I loved how it looked. I loved the mechanical sound of the camera. I had no need to look at it on the back. Um, you know, I, I loved shooting and I would overdevelop and overexpose to get more contrast and grain, which yeah. made it easy for me to print. I worked in a professional photo lab for close to two years and that gave me a lot of great experience. And that's yeah. how I met a lot of professionals too, where I was seeing their stuff and I'm like, I can do this. You know, these guys are, I'm getting this super low hourly wage and these guys are living, doing my dream job. And that's that was part of how I got the courage to do it finally. But anyway, back to to film. Um, I uh, you know the, I got a I started I was shooting Leica film cameras for a, a long period, and I bought a digital camera made by Epson that had a it was the first Leica mount rangefinder digital camera. Oh. What year was that? T- t- two thousand two thousand and one. No, uh, well. I think no, it was around later. 2000. Yeah, no, I think it was around 2002 or 2003. Yeah. yeah. Um, and 
It was terrible. I mean, it was a it was a good looking camera, and it had these gorgeous analog dials. You know, it was a black camera with these white analog dials, and that's the kind of stuff that really sucks me in. Yeah. Um, and uh, but it was just it was terrible above ISO for uh, four hundred. You know, no dynamic range. The highlights were terrible. Everything was terrible about it. And uh, it, I after stuck with it for a while, but it kept breaking. <laughs> And rather, because it was a, you know, it's Epson as a printer company, and these these cameras were actually made by Cosina, um, which makes the, they make the Voigtlander cameras mm. and uh, various other things. They make some of the low-end icon cameras. Um, and they had no, you know, they weren't really a camera company, so they had no provision to fix it. So they just kept sending me new ones. And after the third one, I just bailed and sold it and... Then later, I got a friend of mine gave me his original, the original Canon 1D, which was the same size as the 1V film camera, yeah. which is something that I'd used, and that was terrible too. You know, yes, <laughs> the 1D was super <laughs> soft, really, yeah, really well made, but just <laughs> terrible. Um, and you know, but I started thinking, well, my favorite films are starting to disappear. I should probably figure out what what's going on with digital and. Part of a, my thinking was sort of pragmatic, like most of my waste, because film is like a, a dollar, you know, I don't know what the yeah. conversion is, but, you know, a dollar or a euro per shot. And that adds up. So I'm thinking most of the waste is during the reception. I started shooting digital just for the reception. Right. Um, and that was that was sort of the uh, gateway drug to, uh, yes. you know, it sort of blossoming into uh other things and fast forward you know my favorite films started to be discontinued you know digital got better i my understanding of digital got better and then now i feel confident that because i have to have a digital file anyway instead of scanning you know what few films are remaining i might as well start with digital and make that look like my old work and so yeah I'm at a point now where my portfolio is still probably 25% film, but no one can tell the difference. Yeah, no one, no one's ever been able to tell. Interesting. What's what. uh, and that's uh, when I look through your folio that, that it does very much have a film uh, look to me. And I'm just um, so. Do you think that having that uh, first uh, maybe half of your career doing uh, or, or, or that intro into shooting film, you did, you did 10 years film and 10 years, is that right? Have you? Well, at least I actually shot film even longer. Like I yeah. hung on um, yeah. and I was doing sort of hybrid shooting for a while, meaning, you know, half film and half digital. And it was a post-production mess, you know, it was just you know i had digital you have a timestamp, so you know when the stuff is but then when i'm using two or three film bodies on top of it and you get those film scans and they're all back at different times and so you have you have to put this stuff in order and the, the post the the workflow was a disaster so yeah. i just thought part of what shoved me over too was just simplifying things so yeah. i shot film you know I probably shot it. I've shot it later than that, but I shot it as part of my flow, really, until like 2008 or 2009. 
And do you think that that um, working with film influences ha- how 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 you shoot today? Like, I, I wonder that I see a lot of uh, photographers that start in the in the digital era, and it, there is a lot of uh, chimping that goes on or second guessing. And I think you can spot a film shooter because they're not doing that. They they they're just trusting. Their, their gut and they're focusing on getting the shot. I know when I shoot, I, I just shoot. I don't chimp. Uh, and it, because I think it interrupts the flow of the shoot. How, how do you, how do you feel about that? Are you, do you, are you looking at the back of the camera or are you just trusting that you, you're backing yourself and just shooting to get the shot? Well, yeah, it's funny because I, I, I do feel like I, I, I don't know definitively if, if having a film background is was a positive or, or, uh, or negative experience for me. But I, my gut is that it helped me develop my eye and develop um, the ability to pre-visualize what I'm going to get without having mm. to see it on the back because you, mm. you have that disconnect where you're shooting – Especially when you're traveling, you're shooting. Like I would, I did, I did, I've done weddings in, you know, Hawaii and India and Thailand and Bali and uh, uh, Hong Kong and, you know, other places I'm forgetting. But I shot film in all of those locations. And I remember that feeling of like, you know, you don't, you do, some of those I had some digital, but you don't know definitively that you got, you know, and that anything was exactly what what uh, you thought it was. But one of the things, like anything else, like playing guitar or exercising or anything that you do with repetition, you know from experience what things are going to look like. So I know in any given situation how much overexposure I needed to dial in. And now we see that directly in the viewfinder of electronic mm. fi- finders, which yes. is one of, the, one of the reasons that I've been shooting mirrorless for six years. But that's another topic yeah yeah but um i do feel like i learned also to pace myself not to overshoot because i came from that you know shooting leicas you would if you would load it they're just the right way i could get 37 frames yeah and uh you know that changes the way you shoot because like let's say i'm sitting at a wedding reception I've got three different bodies. They all have different focal lengths on them. So at that time, it was typically 35, 50, and a 90. And I knew, you know, from looking at that little physical dial, like if it said 29, that mean I ha- that would mean I had, uh, you know, eight, possibly eight more frames. So if yes. they were the couple was about to kiss, I would have to time it appropriately. Yeah. Um, and there's all this these logistic, like physical logistics that you had to go into because you had to. You had to decide the film speed in advance. You had to decide if it was color or black and white in advance. Yeah. You know, these are decisions that are so foreign to people now because you don't, you have anything as possible. And I think that's one of the exciting things about um, digital is, you know, and to, I see a lot of positives now. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I, still, I, I still think people should learn film and I think it should be taught in college classes. But, yep. you know, I don't know if I'm just being nostalgic. But I, I do think because it's such an important part of history, of phot- photographic history, and it's 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 helpful for people to have that discipline of not getting instant gratification and not and and being able to see a print come up in the developer, which is one of the most exciting things that 
you know, I think Ooh. anyone can do. The best experience ever, ever. Oh, it's, it, it's so exciting. It's beautiful. I love it. I, I miss it so much. I miss it. I actually pulled out a box of uh, negatives uh, this morning and was having a look through and uh, thinking, I wonder if I could um, put a dark room here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, well, really I was do. lucky. I'm, I mean, I, I had an access to a friend's dark room, and if I didn't have that, my perspective might have been very different. Yeah, um, but I he lived like a few houses down from me. I could walk to his house, print whenever I wanted. I would sit and listen to music or the or public radio. You know, hours would go by, and I would go to the college that I I used to take classes at, and I could use their dark room. And again, like I would go there on weekends, and I would be in the dark all weekend, and I loved it. And that's like you, like I don't I don't look at the back of the camera. I have it off. Um, I, I find it distracting and I also, it just as a, from a practical standpoint, it eats up the battery. So, yeah, um, yeah. I don't like to disconnect, um, from what I'm doing, but I do find that, you know, like sometimes when I sit down for dinner, um, at the wedding, I will take a look maybe and see if the shot that I remembered being great was, was as great as my memory. Well, there, and, and but you know, in the film days, I, I was uh, camped outside the uh, the lab waiting for my clip test to come out, and I could not wait. And it's like when I do a shoot now, I cannot wait to get those images uh, loaded up so that I can have a look at them. And I've always said to myself, the day that goes away is a day I'll, ha- I'll hang my camera up. I don't want to shoot anymore if I don't have that excitement, if I'm not looking forward to uh, seeing the images. Do you, do you have a similar outlook to your photography? Are you still excited to see uh, wedding number 601 as you were to see the first one? Oh, exactly. And I think in some cases even more so yeah. because um, <laughs> like I even tell the clients who are interviewing me when I – um, I'm as excited or more excited to see those results than you are. So yeah. I have a ritual when I get home where I, I back it up. I, I cannot sleep no matter how late it is. I sit down, you know, I might, if, if it's bedtime, I might, you know, help tuck in our, our youngest. And then I will sit down in front of the computer, back up those raw files to two different drives. And then I, I now start an online cloud back up to uh, a product called Backblaze. Um, and that's a, it's a slow process. So I get that going at night and then, um, you know, I feel safe, but I, I will take a peek and, you know, especially cause there's always at, at almost every wedding, there's something that I remember being a key moment yeah. and I want to peek at that and I want to look at it and I might do a quick edit on it and then put it on Instagram or yeah. send it to the couple or I might put it on Facebook if I'm really excited about it. But, um, you know, yeah, I'm, I, I, that excitement hasn't gone away and that's, I'm very excited about that. And that has a lot to do with why, I do still go through periods where I feel like I'm, I can get a little, I don't want to say burned out is a little excessive, but I do have, because it's a, such an intensely social means of photography, when you have great clients, it's the best job in the world. I mean, it just reinforces how lucky I am. And then when, when it's not quite as great or the couple doesn't have a connection or, you know, there's some other thing going on or you're having, you know, you're 
you're tired or having a rough day or something, there's some other external factor. It can be a very, you, you become very aware of how long you're at this wedding. Yeah, it can be intense and it, it's a lot. It's a lot. It's physically exhausting, punishing work and no, no one understands until they've done their first wedding how fi- you're on your feet all day long, you're running around, but it, that, that's not it. You're also thinking all day. That's intense. So so you're punished on both levels and then the the social part of it as well is so important. Um now I want to really get into your your workflow and your thinking uh, behind all of this, but I, like there there is a beautiful quote in your bio, and I just want to share it with your listeners. Um, and and this is uh, something that you said: "It's like a bell goes off in my mind when I see everything fall into place in the frame, and the shutter is pressed, and at that instant of harmony, I'm always looking and waiting." for the next bell that's beautiful so it's like you you feel it like ding 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 got that shot and so even when you're shooting film you 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 sense that 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 moment that you just that you just know it feels right and it's almost like uh when you've done as as many 600 weddings uh, so far and there is this muscle memory that you developed it's like you're, you're no longer shooting from your head it's from your heart really it's like an intuitive thing how is that different differ today like so that you've got this uh beautiful sense of timing and just knowing and backing yourself and being so confident in your style how is that different when bradley hansen shot his first wedding what what was your approach then and how have you changed it uh today what are you doing well, differently? How are you different as a photographer? Boy, that is that would that's tricky to summarize, but I'll I'll, uh, I'll do <laughs> my best. Um, but yeah, thank you. Uh, I, I'm I hope I don't know if anyone else has ever read my bio that, that far, but I hope they do. I try to, I try to answer as many. It's things beautiful, as I can Bradley. You write oh. beautifully. You really do. I love what you have to say. So uh, I I encourage everyone to go and, and check out and uh, like you send out regular uh, blog posts as well, which are, are all very beautifully thought out. Oh, thank you. I always feel like with the blog posts, I don't want to be repetitive. And that's, that's something that I feel is also true with my work where, you know, if I have a shot, I'm going to go off on this segue for a second. Like if I have a shot that's similar to something I've already done, I don't want to post it in my portfolio unless it's better than something that I've already done. So Mm -hmm. my threshold for exciting myself is higher, you know, or my, my threshold for, for surprising myself, like, is this portfolio worthy becomes higher and higher every time. Yeah. But, uh, so my first wedding ever was just mostly terror because I, (laughs) I had no idea what I was doing. And I think some of that ended up being positive because I didn't, I didn't know what I was doing and I didn't know what people wanted. And I had no, I had only been to like two or three weddings in my life. Really? So I, I, yeah, I I knew very little about the ritual. Wow. Um, You know, I, it was great. And so now it's funny as I know all the minutiae of all these different world cultures, because there is a lot of overlap with certain things. And, uh, you know, the, the number seven comes up and, in Indian and Jewish weddings, and yeah. you know, there's there's a lot of the customs alone are are amazing. But um, so I think it was positive for me that my only real experience prior to that was 
shooting landscapes and I'd done some portraits for people and uh, I'd been shooting a little bit for these Seattle weekly papers, which would be random assignments, you know, anything from do one portrait of this guy to, you know, photograph the mayor, photograph city council meetings, do restaurant reviews. I might, they might stick me in a somewhere and get shots of people like, but what now would be referred to as street photography. Right. Um, and I was, the funny thing was I was doing all that on film cameras um, and so when the job was due, I would get it, I would take it to just a cheap, I would have to shoot color film because I needed it quickly. So yeah. I would shoot it, I needed a one hour, literally doing scans at a one hour lab because I, so I could send it to the paper. And then I'd have to drop it off at a drugstore. I don't know if it's the same in Australia, but you know, just like a convenience yeah, store. Yeah, one hour. Yeah, 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 we yeah. Have that. yeah. Get it back in an hour. And then I would send quickly, you know, dust. I'd have to dust spot, which is something you don't have to do today. <laughs> oh, my God. Because <laughs> static and, you know, you'd get film in the camera or, you know, film from your coat or your shirt would transfer yep. onto the roll as it's hitting the pressure plate. But anyway, um, so, you know, I was mostly terrified, but I think being being ignorant ended up being sort of helpful in that. Um, I shot it in a very candid way, just trying to get the kind of things that I would have wanted if it was my wedding. And I didn't, I've never liked doing posed group shots. Um, I do them, you know, uh, sometimes I do almost none. And sometimes if the couple wants a lot, I'll do them. But those aren't things that I feature because that's not how I define myself. Um, you know, those aren't the things that I'm looking for. I just want to make sure that the family is happy because when they look at their their son or daughter's wedding, they're looking for those pictures, you know, and then mm. they might look. The couple tends to be more adventurous than the parents. But um, I uh, so now um, what happens over time is the terror quickly goes away because you understand what what's going on. How, sorry, how many how many weddings in do you think that uh, when when you sort of did did you even say to yourself, hey, I'm not I'm not scared, I'm not sweating, I'm not about to throw up before a wedding because <laughs> I can tell you that before my first maybe three, four, five, six weddings that I did. And I used to do only uh, three a year. Uh, they were usually the daughter of a client or some, something like that. But I found them terrifying because I had no control. I couldn't stop the ceremony and say, okay, because I like to control things in the way I shoot. Yeah. And because of that, that, they were terrifying for me. Um, but then there was one day when it's like, oh, I'm not scared anymore. Do, do you remember that moment? Was there a moment like that? You know, there's nothing like, you know, I don't, I keep, I, I don't keep a diary. I do keep a diary about my things that my five-year-old says, cause I think they're so funny and I want to be mm. able to look back on, on those milestones. But I don't remember like a specific moment where I thought, oh, this, I really like this, you know, but I, <laughs> I remember that feeling several times, but I think it was probably a year or a year and a half into it. And I think what happened, what kind of kicked me into high gear where I must have bypassed that sort of epiphany was, so I started shooting weddings in 1999. I think in the year 2001, I was doing like, you know, I immediately got more work than I knew what to do with. I I, I think I did 54, 55 weddings that year. 
That's a lot. Oh, it was it That's was That's a insane. lot by anyone. Yeah. That's burnout st- um, level there. So well, it was, we in, just, in your second just, year. My oldest son was my oldest son was just had just been born too. So I wasn't getting any sleep. I'm shooting fifty you know, whatever, fifty five weddings and I was shooting film. So that process wow. was shoot all this film, drop it off of the lab. I had these astronomical, I remember, Yeah. I don't know if I've ever said this out loud to anybody, but I remember there was one month when I literally owed them over $20,000 yeah. just in film. But I was taking in, you know, I was, I was, I quickly got to a high level, a high market level where I was getting paid properly. And, um, but, uh, I remember dropping off all this film and I'd have to get all these scans back and I was getting four by six proofs made of every single frame. So I would make, I'd have to put it in order. I'd make a yes, no, maybe pile. And then I was putting those proofs in four by six proof books and they weren't just chronological. I would want it to look good. You know, I'd want it to lay it out like a book. And so it was just a super labor intensive process. And I, I just remember that just being constant, perpetually exhausted and, and not, and realizing that I, I wasn't happy with that level of work. And so I just charged more and that sort of, you can control your work level by how much you charge in any given market. So the more you charge, you know, you're going to have fewer clients, but you're going to make more at each wedding. And then you, you tend to get weddings that are more, this is sort of an unspoken thing in the wedding industry but there's kind of a price point where magazines don't like I don't want to say they they don't like them but there's a there's a price point at which the decor becomes more interesting to magazines uh-huh um and so the higher end clients tend to have more picturesque weddings it's just yes. the reality of the yeah, market of so but I've done weddings for people that I know can barely afford me um and I still think I'm very reasonable, but I mean, yeah. I'm, I know for a fact that if they've communicated their budget to me and I know if they're stretching and I, if, and especially if they're great people and I like them, I will work really hard and go way above and beyond for them because I want to keep them happy. And I want, I want to do a great job for everybody. Yeah. But, and you um, like the work, you like to work and it, yes. and it, it sometimes it comes down to, wow, well, this is going to be an interesting shoot. I'm going to really enjoy it. And you can sort of, um, come to the party on that rather than just, uh, accepting jobs on price. Because when you do that, your work does take a, another direction as well, I, I, I believe. Well, yeah. And the great clients, you feel like you're a guest and you feel like you're part yes. of the party. And so that's, I think, you know, um, I know, uh, I have some overlap with, with Ian in that regard where, you know, the great people, the great clients leave you alone. You know, they, they just hire you, they leave you alone. And I I do my best work when I'm not micromanaged. I just want to go there, be as, as discreet and invisible as possible and then get the kind of things that I'm looking for. And so privately I'm sweating, like, you know, things that you were talking about where like, you see something evaporate in the distance. You're like, ah, I couldn't get to it, yeah. you know, and you have to just let it go because there's, you know, that there's going to be something else. It might not be as good as the thing you just saw disappear, but, um, there's going to be something else. And so you have to just think positively, like I'm going to get the next one. And just, that's part of that tiring 
part that you alluded to too, where I shoot with three cameras. I have to shoot with three different prime lenses, so I don't change lenses ever. So um, you're using your well, face? Yes, and so I will occasionally. I have a. I'll have a. I might have an extreme or a wider angle and a, and a telephoto if. For just extreme examples where I can't be like if uh, sometimes at Catholic weddings you have to be, you can only be at the back of the cathedral and then yeah. there's no variety at all and you don't want to be stuck with an 85 because yeah. you're just gonna it's just gonna be 20 versions of the same thing but yeah um, in general you know I'm I'm wearing three cameras and even though the mirrorless cameras are much lighter than the big heavy uh, so SLRs you, that I was are you wearing shooting Fuji. No, I'm shooting uh, three – well, for the last – I shot Fuji cameras for four years and I yeah. love a lot of things about them. But I've for the last uh, year and a half, I've been shooting Sony and I've been much mm. happier. Right. Um, and so you've the got three Sony bodies. Bigger. Yeah. And the cameras are a little bit bigger but it's a bigger sensor. The lenses have to be bigger. Mm. Um, the performance in low light is, is, is noticeably better. And there's some unique things about the way they focus that I like. Um, but they're still small and manageable. So when I was wearing these big, you know, like I remember at one point, you know, I've used both Nikon and Canon and you're wearing those big, I don't know if you remember the Nikon F5. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it was a very, very, very robust camera. Yeah. <laughs> it was really well made. And, uh, uh, I think significantly better than what Canon was offering at the time, which yeah, was yes. the one V, you know, I broke yes. a couple of one V's. I can, I can prove my case. Yeah. So the, anyway, yeah, I was wearing three of those and basically using the same lenses, you know, like I always like kind of a semi wide, like a 28 to 35 and then a normal and then a short telly. Yeah. Um, and, uh, those cameras at the end of the day, you know, even if they only weighed, not quite double what I'm using now, but it adds up. And so I would come back at the end of the day just exhausted. And I would remember that feeling of like sitting down in the car as I'm leaving the venue and all of that energy just draining from your body because you're you're actively looking. And that's it's actually more, I think, the mental aspect of it than the physical. Like you're actively looking because the way that I shoot, I don't know what I'm going to get. You know, if I was working from a template, I would just go in there and it's like an assembly line. I'm like, I'm getting this and bang, bang, bang. I'm ticking these things off a box, but I don't know what I'm going to get. So I think it's that that mental process of actively looking where I feel like it's the pressure that I put on myself that's so exhausting. So it, it, It's exciting. It's exciting to be in amongst it. And so I want to go back to that muscle memory and that, that shooting intuitively. So you're looking and you talk about that. There's that, that bell goes off. You just know that that's the shot. And there isn't time. If you're shooting from a thinking mind of, is this a good shot? Is this a good shot? The process of spotting the shot, you might see it out of your corner of the eye. Something's happening. And then you go through the process of, is this a good shot? How do I frame it? What shutter speed am I shooting at? What a aperture? The shot's moved on. They've, they've left. You've missed it. So there, there has to be that moment where you just go, bang, you see it. And then you kind of almost surprise yourself sometimes by saying, oh, oh look, right. Yeah, that was that. Yeah. I, pl I planned that. And, in, and even knowing, um, 
the angle that you want to shoot at. And so like your, your, your lenses are quite short. So you're in amongst it. You're almost on top of people, um, there. And, and so that you get that sense of being a guest at the wedding. You're in, you're there. It, it's so close and intimate. So how long did it take you to develop that style and that love for shooting that 35 or 50 kind of, uh, format? And how did that, for, how did you develop that style well what's what's funny is the first camera i ever bought so i think everyone's used to now like if you buy you know especially on the low-end cameras they come with what people often refer to as a kit lens which is you know if it's a if it's an aps-c camera it's typically like an 18 to 55 or if it's a if it's a larger format camera it might be a 24 to 70 um the first camera that I ever bought myself was in 1983. I think it was the Minolta X100 or X, I'm sorry, X700. And I bought it with uh, the Minolta 51.7 because I couldn't afford the 51.4. Yeah. Because it was my first job ever. I, the first thing I ever bought with my first job was a camera. And, uh, so I, you know, I saved up for it. I had the brochure. I remember staring at it forever. Um, and so I, my first camera ever was a 50. And I think the, I remember the feeling I had at the time was these, this a normal lens is not an exciting lens. It doesn't impart any, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't have the compression of a telly. It doesn't have the excitement and the exaggerated perspective of a wide, mm. um, and uh, I'm, I went through this period where I felt like, oh, I need to do this and this and this. You know, I needed the, my second lens was a 28. And I remember being more excited about that, which is funny now because a 28 seems too wide to me. But at the time, I remember really being excited by the 28 um, because I was shooting a lot. I was either doing landscapes or portraits. And then eventually I got into like 20 because I was shooting black and white infrared film and 20, 20 millimeter lenses and black and white infrared film created this sort of surreal world um, that I, I was very excited about for a while. But uh, anyway, fast forward, you know, I, I slowly realized um, through looking at a lot of photography and a lot of photography books like people like Elliot Erwitt, um, mm. people like Ralph Gibson, people yep. like uh, photographers like uh, Cartier-Bresson. Um, actually, t- almost everyone from the 50s and 60s, you know, they were using 50 millimeter lenses. Yep. And I'm looking at all these pictures and thinking, okay, the problem all this time has obviously been me. You know, it's not the lens. There's no, you know, no, uh, there's no magic button. There's no you know, there's no magical camera switch that's going to suddenly make you, you know, go from, you know, whatever, wherever you are at any given point to this, you know, significant advance. It has to come from you and it has to come from, you know, for me, it came at looking at what I was doing, looking at the kind of stuff that I really liked and analyzing it. Like what, where's the light coming from in this photograph? Where is the, what's the photographer's angle? Is he high or low? How close is he to the subject? Um, what focal length is this? And so when I, once I'd made peace with the 50, um, I started sort of just arbitrarily forcing myself to use it. So I just thought instead of, 
constantly switching focal lengths. I'm just going to sit and focus on on using just the 50. And that really taught me that that now I consider more like 35 to 50 kind of the sweet spot for me. Mm. But those, those focal ranges, I, I know them so well now. I know what I'm going to get before I bring the camera to my eye. Um, and that's how I decide which of the three cameras that are on my neck and shoulders at any given point is which one I'm going to use. Like if something's far away, I reach for my, I know that I reach for my right shoulder, which is an 85. Yeah. Um, if something is tight, I reach for my left shoulder, then that's the 35. And if in, in extremely tight spots, I'll put on a 28. But, um, you know, anything outside of that range just feels really foreign to me. So yeah. these are the ranges I know now. And these are that makes that takes all the guesswork out of it. And so it, it's like a, anything else, you know, not to be a broken record, but it comes down to experience. Like I know what these lenses do. I know what they look like. I know the perspective. I don't have to think about it because that's muscle memory. And that's why I use three specific primes that's why on my cameras i've been tempted by mixing and matching but i always come back to i have three identical cameras i don't have to think about the buttons being in different places yeah you know so there was a time when i was shooting fuji that i was using two x pro ones and an x100s and they're all they're all great but you know the they had they were different the buttons were in different spots and it would mess you up so one might be play on one it might be delete on another you know you might be changing in the drive mode when you think you're changing the ISO and yeah. stuff like that so it just having three cameras whatever they are if they're all the same i don't have to think about what the buttons do because i already know and so yes, and it, yeah it's true and it becomes this tool it's an extension of your hand you get so comfortable that you just you you're not looking down you're not having to think about where your thumb is moving or or the other finger you can change shutter speed aperture everything so quickly that that like it does become an intuitive uh, thing. The shooting—it's not—it's not this uh, mechanical thing that takes over the the, the shoot. Um, now, something that you you also said uh, that like on developing that photographic style. Another beautiful quote from you is: "I learned early on that showcasing a portfolio of images that speak to me will attract the kind of clients who share the same." visual aesthetic now that's uh also a very beautiful quote um putting that work out there is only showing the kind of work that you want to shoot now how does that work with um are you tempted or were you ever tempted like early on in your career to just put out everything? I, I just want to show that I'm a good and capable photographer. And how has your thinking changed on that to, to kind of attract the kind of clients that you want now? Well, uh, well, thank you for the compliment. Um, I do, I do feel like, um, I don't know if my, my perspective has changed tons about it. I do remember even early on, I was, I went through a period where I was really excited about everything I was doing because a lot of it was new to me. Yeah. So, um, like I mentioned, you know, one of the, one of the only real changes is that my threshold for something being portfolio worthy is extremely high now because I want to, you know, there's an, there's a theoretically infinite amount of 
things you can do inside of a frame. But the longer that I'm at this, the more likely it is that I've seen something, I've done something like, you know, something that I've already done. So I, I don't want to just keep reinventing myself. But yeah. I think the, the thing that I learned, I think what I was thinking with that quote was, you have to, your, your, the, the person you have to satisfy is ultimately you. So early on, I think after my first wedding went really well, the mistake that I made was, and I don't know if other people do this, but I went through this sort of, you know, self doubt of like, what do other people want? You know, what, yeah. what you know, and I, I, that was a, that was a mistaken tangent to go down because I think the, you have to please yourself. And so if you, once you figure out what you like and kind of develop a, a recognizable style and it's something that you can deliver consistently in any kind of lighting and with any kind of client and under any kind of time constraint that you want to just keep showing only your best work be, and the stuff that you really love because if you like if I, you know, if someone looks at my portfolio and then after the wedding's over and they say, where are all the head to toe color shots of, you know, my grandpa and grandma, um, you know, uh, or why isn't this and this person like, you know, there's a checklist of, you know, I don't ever promise that I'm going to get a shot of everybody. Right. So that's, that's, in that's the impossible. Right. Okay. We discussed that. I actually don't have that language in my contract and I, yep. it's never been an issue um, so far. I feel like my contract is pretty basic, but a lot of it has sort of come about like a lot of contracts do where, you know, something happens. Like the, I remember early on, I didn't even, I didn't get paid. I had a retainer fee, you know, which sometimes people refer to as a deposit, but yeah. I didn't, I didn't get paid in advance until the, I think it was probably like the sixth or seventh wedding and someone just didn't pay me. And then, and then you, you know, lesson. yeah. And they actually split up even before oh I could my collect. God. I know that's funny. Cause early on the clients were much less predictable. Um, and there's kind of a sweet spot economically right in kind of in the middle. Um, but, uh, when I was shooting, you know, when I was just getting started, I don't know if a lot of people talk about this, but you kind of have to, you don't have to give the work away, but you have to work very cheaply in order to attract yeah. clients Of course, to trust someone who has no portfolio. So, you of know, I, I remember that fear of, of not having that under my belt, but then, you know, I felt also the freedom to experiment. And so once I got that, like, what do people want? you know, out of, out of my system and just started shooting what I really wanted to get, then the, the quality of clients went, you know, it, it's pretty easy to draw that conclusion. Yeah. So the quality of clients get better, you know, your work improves because when you get better clients, you're more in sync and they leave you alone and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And everything else falls into place. So just on that, that, that being left, I mean, the ideal client is the one that just says, oh, no, we've hired you to do what you do. Just do what you do. I mean, they're a dream. But how, like often you get Well, they're that, not all like that. Then no, they're not. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right, you, you've got a wedding to, to, to shoot. How do you determine how much, like there are, 
there are shots that you do need to get, and there are the there is the the clients that are hiring you. Hopefully, it's the bride and groom, but then there's the mother or father of the bride that 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 want that photo that's going to go above the television. You know that that classic shot, and then there's the uh, the art side and the commercial side. Like you've got to eat, you've got to be fed. You you need to keep the client happy. So how do you sort of tread that line? What what is it? Is it like I'm just going to shoot? You you get what you get, and and hopefully that's enough. Or are you listening to the mother or father of the bride saying we need the shot of Auntie Joan and Uncle Ted? Well, uh, I guess I think still every client is different, but one of the things that I've I've learned over the years is to sort of set expectations. So, I think that that you know it's it's funny. It came up. I don't remember. Um, I think it was the podcast that Ian and I did with Martin Parr, where he asked Martin Parr asked me, "Have you ever disappointed a client?" And uh, I thought back, and I think I, there of I know of at least two. Um, where there was a disconnect and one of them was with the couple and one of them was actually the couple was happy but the parent or the mom wasn't happy that she thought my style was too casual right um but that was sort of you know that led me to have the conversation with couples where i said you know okay you know this this is part of why you want to present your your dream portfolio too is this is what i'm looking for so when i i say to them this are the kind of things that i look for by hiring me you are in essence saying i like your perspective please do this at my wedding yeah now we will discuss i help people plan kind of a basic timeline so because i work hourly so I have rates based on, you know, these oh, hourly so it's an chunks. hourly rate. Right. Okay. Yeah. So I, but I, I have, you know, you have these sort of flat fees and then to hire me for additional time is, is slightly reduced, but that way it's, it's sort of modular. Yep. So I, I sit down and I say, okay, you have me for, let's say you have me for seven hours. Here's mm-hmm. what I would do. And then I say, I help them. It helps them because, you know, I, I, as someone who's been on both sides of the camera, I know how foreign some of the the concept of time can be to a client. So I say, hey, this is what I think would work and this was would allow you to have a natural carefree day where you focus on the important thing, which is really just to, you know, hang out with this person you love, have fun and get married. And then this allows me the time and the situations to get the kind of stuff that I want to get. So for example, I'm shooting a wedding uh, this Saturday. Um, we had a conversation where I, she, I said, look, you have me for this number of hours. Hmm. This is what, what I think we should do. And they say, you know, yes or no, because you have those two. There are two sort of fixed moments of the day. I'm, I'm, I'm getting a little off topic, but, you know, you have the ceremony time and then the caterer has to serve food at a specific time yep. and everything kind of revolves around those two times. And that it's kind of funny how, you know, of all the weddings I've done, that interval is fairly consistent. Yeah. Um, it just depends on how many locations they're at. And a lot of, you know, if people are, everything is at one location, you don't, it's a much more efficient use of time. And if you're going to a, salon and a hotel and a park and a venue and then a church and then a and back to a hotel and you know everything else you have a lot more time that that's 
needs to be spent. But during that conversation, I say, now, this is when, you know, I, I will allot a specific amount of time to shoot with a couple so I can put them in different spots. I'm not going to run them through a bunch of canned poses, but I want to, you know, keep them talking, especially if one of them is uncomfortable, which is tends to be the groom. Yes. Um, you know, I want to talk him through that process. So you want to do anything, but like the worst thing you can say is these are forever. You know, don't, <laughs> don't do that face. But, um, you know, you want to keep them comfortable. And then after that, um, I want to do some quick portraits where I'm very deliberate, you know, like I just want to put them in window light. I want them to look great. I want the light to be flattering. You know, the, the, it's going to be a more traditional portrait. The eye is going to be tack sharp and the background is going to be soft because I want them to see how great they look in that light. Right. Then I, then I might do bang out a few family portraits and that I, I want them to look great, but I let them sort of form organically where, you know, I have people like I pick a spot that's good. I let people sort of, you know, I just say stand with your significant other. People will form. I'll, I might tweak it a little bit so I can see everybody. And then I just shoot. Shoot. You know, what they, and, however they, they fall. So it's a, a very natural looking shot. <laughs> yes. And sometimes, you know, again, based on the volume, the degree to which it's natural can sort of disappear because yep. if it ha if it's a lot of people, you have to exert a lot of control. And if it's six or eight people, it can be a lot more natural. But I want, I, I want it. I want the people to look good and I know that those are important to them. They're not going to be things that are going to make my portfolio, but that's to, to get to the, your original question. I, I can satisfy myself and still take, you know, the time to give them something that is going to be important to, at least to the parents. It yes. might not be something a couple wants, but you know, ultimately your, your loyalty is to the couple yep. and then you want to keep the parents happy because most of the referrals come from the, the couple, but you know, you want to keep everyone happy. Exactly. I, just a, a question I've thought when you're shooting in this day, are you, do you have to slap Instagram face out of people like, because everyone's so savvy about what looks good and how, how do you get you around mean that, that duck face? There's, it's not just duck face, but I just know that there are people of a certain age that have grown up uh, seeing only seeing their image off an iPhone, which is super wide and up close and up high, and it tends to compress the face and it makes people look different. So if you shoot them with a different lens, suddenly they're going to go, I don't like my face there. I look fat. Yeah. Do you get that? <laughs> you, have you ever experienced uh, well, that? Or they'll go into that, you know, um, skinny arm pose that they just know that they've seen all the, you know, beauty bloggers do or stuff like that and that it's very set up. Like, Yeah. Well, you know, if, if ultimately you want the people in the photographs to be comfortable, so I don't feel like I – I don't know if I see a lot of that, but when I do see people who are – tilting themselves slightly or holding their arm in a certain way that they think is flattering. Most of the time I leave them alone because I figure they're doing that on purpose. They've done this before. They know how they want to be presented. And I let, unless I think it looks weird to me, I will generally leave it alone because one of the things that you learn quickly, you know, 
just to, to, to be brief about my own experience just with the iPhone with wide angles is you learn quickly when you're shooting groups. If you, if you go wider than like once you start getting into 28, 24, 21, hmm. you know, which is territory that I rarely get into, but when you see perspective distortion, meaning <laughs> you have, let's say I have a group of eight people, or even if it's just one person, but that person is at the edge of a frame of a 28, yeah. that arm and their <laughs> head are going to be a different shape than they would be yeah. if it was in the middle and yeah. up close. So because the iPhone is almost, it's like a three to four ratio and it's, the iPhone is very close to about 28 millimeter perspective. Um, it takes a while to kind of get into that zone. But, um, what I, what I realized quickly is, and you can never say this to, uh, the group, but let's say the bride, the bride has, um, a relative who is larger than another relative or one of the bridesmaids. Yeah. You know, especially with sleeveless dresses, and I want mm. everyone to look good, and I want it to be flattering. I will put um, if I have a tight space and I have to use a wide lens, I will make sure that I have the thinnest person on the ends. Yes, um, and I still don't want them to be at the very edge of the frame because, for reasons of distortion, but also if they're going to crop that to. Um, one of the some of the standard print sizes require cropping off the end, and so I have to. It pains me to do while shooting, but you have to leave more space on the ends um, yeah. if if people want to crop. And I, you know, I know your your crop sizes are a little bit different, but basically, the crop standard print sizes tend to be less rectangular than the three to two ratio of thirty five mm. millimeter. You know what what we refer to as full frame. And that's um, just a good life tip too, to just like if you're ever being photographed and it's a group shot, don't stand on the end. Correct. <laughs> yes, correct. Inside the group because well, you're always I'm, going to look better. You're the one on the end. You're going to always look huge because yeah. it's usually oh, the, taken with an iPhone. I figured that on myself because yes. I saw, I was like, why does my head look so weird? <laughs> yes. Um, you know, if you're, if you're, because I'm, I'm relatively tall and so sometimes I would get stuck on the end. Or I would be way closer, you know, to the camera than the some someone else, and then you realize what happens. You know, your head, your nose, your features get bigger, and those are things that don't happen if you're in the middle of the frame. And so, the goal is the same. And when it's when you're experienced, you know, any photographer that has any experience with it knows, you know, you want to be flattering to your subjects to the to the best of your ability. Yep put your slightly larger uh, people in either slightly in the background or more toward the center and then it will sort of even everything out and people who are extremely thin look great and no matter what so you don't have to be quite as careful but you know as a general rule anything that people do whether it's something they learn from Instagram or not Yep. I think is probably flattering. And that's probably ultimately a positive thing about Instagram is your phone is not, you know, it's, it's set to be a general all around focal length, unless you're using like a, the new iPhones have that portrait function yeah. that sort of imitates a, uh, like a, like an 85, but, um, you know, and it's simulating shallow depth of field. But I think just having to get used to how people look in a wide angle and that higher perspective it is more flattering. You know, have you ever yeah. picked up 
this is the funny thing. Like you, you know, you're first thing in the morning or you're getting your coffee. And if you ever pick up your phone and the camera is on and it's facing up and you're like, oh my God, yeah. who is that? From underneath. Who yes. Yeah, who is that awful person? <laughs> oh my God, it's me. You know, like that's, that's, that's a good lesson, you know, yeah. like shooting under. And that's one of the things about being tall. I have sort of a, a slightly built in advantage is it's a more flattering yeah, you're above it's more everyone. For, yeah, it's better. You don't want to shoot up anyone's nose or up anyone's no, up, up not, the chin. Not with a, not with a wide lens uh, no. ever. Um, now, something that I loved that you talked about, and I can still remember this from uh, an interview you did with Andrew Helmich on the Photo Biz Experiment podcast, you were talking about um, your culling process and selecting the shot. And something that just stuck in my mind was that talking about like when you uh, select a shot and, and many photographers select a shot that you like, it's a lot of like you become emotionally attached to that image and for reasons that are not always um the the right reasons and so sometimes when you 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 love a shot it's because of the effort that went into getting that shot and I'm like oh my god that makes so much sense to me I, I hadn't ever thought of the, you know how I select my shots in that way so often if you've gone out and shot something and you know that it's like oh my god I I had four lights and uh the sun was setting and it was so quick and I, I managed to get that shot. That's why you love it. And it's not about whether it's a good shot or a, or not. And then you're having to deal with uh, clients that um, maybe if, if you give them an option to look through proofs, they always pick the shot that you go, well, why did they pick that? You know, and it might be a magazine that will print your shots and they go, how come they chose that shot? I would never pick that. So how – how do you get around that? And, and it's like in your culling process, because we touched on this in your um, wonderful podcast, Out of Focus, that you do with uh, Ian Weldon. Uh, I did an interview with you. What, what was it, Eric? Like it was about a, six weeks ago or something like that. Um, but we talked about the culling process as well. And when um, Ian and I and you were all talking about there are times when we look at our shots and we just go, I don't even know why I'm doing this. I hate everything. And then there's other times when you look at it and you go, I love everything. How does that work with you? Yeah. Um, well, that's funny. And I think I, I still agree with what I said. Like the, uh, you know, what's funny is it's sort of like I made the, the analogy, I think, with Ian where the – if you have knowledge about what went into a shot, it can completely color, whether it's yours or a famous photographer, it can com completely color your perception of that shot because all that matters to the client at least is what you're getting. So they don't care if you're, you hurt your back or you were at a weird angle or you know everything happened to fall into place perfectly. If, if you love the composition and lighting and it's one of the best things that you've ever done, you might also find that if if there's a sh the frame right before it or right after it might be the one where the couple feels like they look a lot better. They don't care about any of the other stuff that the photographer is hung up on. Mm. And I think that's the one of the disconnects between what a client wants and what a photographer who is compositionally driven and lighting driven, you know, might look for. Like I have 
you know, just, you know, you've, I'm sure you've experienced this where you're, you're taking a shot and then, you know, you think everything is great. It's sort of like a sunset. Like you think everything is great and then suddenly everything gets way better. And that's, um, that can be very exciting. Um, you know, where you realize don't get too hung up on any one moment because it can always be better. Yeah. But, um, yeah. um so I'm sorry, I, I got, I derailed myself. What was, what was that? What was I supposed to be leading to? So we, we were, ta- we were talking about how you cut the culling process and, and sort of, oh, right, uh, right, what, right. you know, what, 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 what sort of your thinking is and do, um, I think sometimes it is a good idea to get that, um, an independent perspective of your images. And I, and I think also as, as you're learning as well, it's something that's hard for photographers to do is to, uh, share your work. You don't want to always take all the advice that people give you, but to have that person who wasn't there look at the image because they'll always, um, select different images. So it's kind right. of, how- yeah, never show a client something and that's not finished. Yes. That's just a matter of, uh, well, that's a whole long story, but yeah, especially for video. Like if I did video, because, uh, that's, oh, no. I remember <laughs> that's I did, I did a wedding with someone who this, they, it's a video company and they promised that they would do like a day of video, you know, so while one photographer, one videographer was shooting, the other guy was editing. And so while this guy was editing, you know, all these people were coming up to him and giving him advice. And he was, you know, he was having problems with the computer. And, you know, like the guy was like, the groomsman was telling him, you know, make sure you have this in there and that. And so I felt really bad for the guy. And they threw together this amazing video that I actually thought was really cool. But I felt terrible for them because the process, you know, to have external input constantly um, was so, you know, you, that you just, the client never sees things the same way as the photographer. And so the other thought I think I might've shared, I don't know if I brought it up when I was, had that interview with Andrew, but you, you know, like you go through, like I go, I go through my, my images the first time. And I, first thing I'm looking for is I just throw away everything where it's someone blinking or it's something I know I don't want, or someone walked into the frame or I blew the focus, you know, whatever the case happens to be, that's sort of my minimum quality standard. And then I look through in that process, I see the things that I'm really excited about too, if I haven't already found them. So let's say, you know, wedding is over. I've picked Sometimes if it's a great wedding, I will think, okay, this is like the 30 or 40 shots that I want to put on a blog post and I really want to promote this or I might send it to a magazine or I might submit it to, uh, you know, various uh, websites for contest entries and things like that. And a lot of times I don't have the time to do that. But, you know, if if it's a wedding you're really excited about and so you post all these and then some time goes by and a year or two goes by and you've done other weddings – and sometimes you go back to an old wedding and you see this picture and you're like, why did I not see this? Yeah, why did I? Sometimes, yeah, like rarely it's something where you're like, I don't like this anymore. More often yeah. it's like there's this great picture that I completely bypassed because I look, you know, I look at things differently as yeah. I get older. And so yeah. I think that's true of anything that you like, like music, movies, you know, you are your perspective on the world is fixed at any given point of where you are in your life based on 
who you are and your experiences and what you've seen and what you like. And that stuff's constantly in flux. Um, you know, especially if you're a curious person, you know, and you're, and you're someone who, I mean, if, if you're working at any one thing, like you're constantly evolving, hopefully. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you look back at old work and sometimes like Ian said, you know, I've, I have that all the time where like, sometimes I think, man, I, I really feel like I'm at the top of my game. And then you know, a week <laughs> later, you'll look at your stuff and like, oh, I don't even know why anyone would hire me. <laughs> exactly. You know, like I, <laughs> you have, it's just, it's, you're so, and maybe that's sort of an, there's an artist brain where you I have this so. sort of fragile, um, you know, tipping point to your ego where you think, you know, I, you feel either underappreciated or that you feel like you're a no talent fraud. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think we all sort of go through that. Well, you're definitely not a no talent fraud. Your work is beautiful. So um, now your website is bradleyhanson.com and there are lots of lots it, like it's very well laid out uh, website as well and I also uh, there there are lots of portfolios there uh, so have a look through all of those and I also I love the iPhone images that you've got in there and the personal uh, projects as well that you've got going on um, lots of fantastic you. work your style is so distinctive as well very filmic and that's what I love I love I, I really like how you see so where else uh can people find you what what else have you got going there's the uh awesome uh the podcast that you do with ian weldon so that's out of focus and that's is that every are you doing that each week or is that fortnight now we did it every week and that yeah. it was i love doing it weekly but i think particularly now in the summer where this is peak season for ian and i yeah uh, it just became too difficult and it's cause you know, we would talk, we ended up talking to the photographer for, you know, an hour and a half for two hours. And then I would have to do, we would have to research the photographer we were going to talk about and the yeah. photographer we were talking with. And then, you know, we would have the recording time and then the burden of editing unfortunately falls on young Ian. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> who, uh, that's a that's a lot of work and then we have to post about it and you know it's a that's, lot that's a lot of work but yeah I, I, I love it and it's it's really been a great experience for me because it's it's not only introduced me to a lot of great current photographers that I love talking with um, yeah. because I love getting a perspective outside of the wedding industry because yeah. that's what we get immersed in you know like that year I did 55 weddings, like you live, sleep and eat, yeah. and breathe weddings. But, you know, um, there's a time when having a break from it is actually what's refreshing. So and then we we get reacquainted with photographers from history. So it's been great. And it's it. Uh, it we try to just have it be casual and have a laugh and have it be something fun for the for everyone involved because we want to, we want it to have an educational component, but we don't want it to be droll and, and yeah. Uh, Cause I can, too. some, some can be dry, but yours certainly isn't. And it's a great conversation. And, uh, I've been introduced to a lot of, uh, contemporary and, uh, um, sort of photographers from history that I, I, I hadn't known a lot about. So, so thanks for that. And what, what about, uh, your social media, where can people, uh, find you there? 
Well, the 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 podcast is at outerfocuspodcast.com and we're on you can find us on iTunes and I guess on Google Podcasts. I'm on Facebook uh, under Bradley Hansen Photography, Hansen with an O. I'm on Instagram. I have two accounts. I have a Bradley Hansen Photography account, which is my what I consider my portfolio for my camera. And then I have a personal account, just Bradley Hansen, which is just the, the iPhone minutia of my day-to-day life. And a lot of it is shots of my wife and I and our six-year-old or our five-year-old, I'm sorry. And uh, the, uh, the just day-to-day things that I – it's sort of like a diary, like things that I think are yeah. interesting or things that I think are visually uh, compelling and they're all that's strictly iPhone. And so I post some of the highlights from that to my VSCO account, which is I don't even know how people would find that Bradley Hansen dot VSCO dot CO, I think. Right. But um, and then uh, uh, I'm actually I'm on Twitter, but I don't do much with it. But that's yeah. just Bradley Hansen. I, I tend to post things like I post links to the podcast and then I, I tend to keep that more like very rare stuff like my blog if i i i blog maybe once once a month because it's just so labor intensive yeah and it's all great stuff so um check it out bradley thanks so much for your time today it's been awesome chatting to you thank you i really appreciate the time All right, there you have it, Bradley Hansen. That was a great interview, Gina. I think one of my favorite quotes I scribbled down, I might have got it wrong, was when he said that he, I think he said he learned early on that showcasing his images, his portfolio of images that he loved would attract the kind of clients who, who also love that visual aesthetic. Yeah, I, that's a beautiful quote. Yeah, and that's like yeah, and 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 so put the put the work out that you want to attract, basically, absolutely, and, uh, and be confident about that. And I think everything changed for him as a photographer when uh, he started to do that. So yeah, amazing stuff, amazing. I just um, we'll put images, some of Bradley's images in the show notes, which of course you can find at GinaMilitia dot com, and they're they're awesome. It's wedding photography, but it's wedding photography not as you know it. There's a very very mm. specific style. It's very natural. He captures the moment, and um, I think it's it's uh, it's awesome. So check it out in the show notes at GinaMilitia dot com. All right. So yeah, Brad, bradleyhanson.com uh, and uh, I think Bradley gave out all those uh, details as well. So all those links uh, are in the show notes too. So what's happening with you until we chat again, Gina? So I'm shooting. I've got a trip to the country uh, on the weekend Why? and I'm planning a trip overseas as well at the moment and uh, <laughs> so for next month mm-hmm. and I'm editing, shooting and, yeah, lots going on. Why are you going to the lots country? To me, I like the country, Val. Um, I've got to shoot there. Okay. You freak out because you just think there's no internet in the country, therefore Valerie Koo can't go. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And you'll be you'll be in gold class watching crazy rich Asians. <laughs> the story of your life. No, well, you know, two out of three ain't bad. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll leave you all to work out which two. All right, where do we find you online, Gina? 
So you can find me at GinaMilitia.com. That's G-I-N-A-M-I-L-I-C-I-A. Most active on Instagram and Twitter. And you'll find me in the podcast Facebook group. So that's So You Want to Be a Photographer Facebook podcast group. I probably got butchered that, <laughs> Val, didn't go I? Just oh, and it search for So You Want to Be a Photographer podcast community. And we'd love that's to have you in right. there. Just request to join. It's free to join and it's um, an awesome group of people from all over the world who love photography. <laughs> exactly. And if you want to connect with me in person, then maybe check out the Gold community where we've got photographers of all levels, beginners and pros, and that's where I'm mentoring and there's over 250 tutorials in there. So come and come and check it out. So just go to GinaMilitia.com and click on Join the Community. That's and it. Val? You'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram. And, of course, feel free to connect with us on Facebook as well. That's the end of this week's episode. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. We look forward to chatting to you again next time. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Photographer. For more information, free resources, and Gina's regular newsletter on everything you need to know to become a successful photographer, visit GinaMilitia.com.